1: Quick question for you, faithful listeners. Apart from the bombing of Darwin in northern Australia and the torpedo attack in Sydney Harbour, on what other occasion did Japanese and Australian troops clash on the mainland of Australia? Give up? Well, it actually occurred over 300 kilometres inland from Sydney in the small country town of Cowra. Strange name, pretty town, scene of a breakout of Japanese prisoners of war in August of 1944. But why did up to 900 prisoners charge the barbed wire and the bullets? Where did they think they were going to run to? And who were the Australians who suddenly found themselves staring down hundreds of charging Japanese? Let's dive in and find out about the Cowra Breakout. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. G'day everyone, welcome back. Before we kick off, just a quick unpaid announcement. This episode, which hopefully has been published on the 19th of August, has been recorded about a month beforehand. Why? Well, because if I've stuck with my timetable, on the 19th of August I will be in the middle of a three-week holiday doing a lap of Queensland. Going from Brisbane to Charleville, Longreach, Mount Isa, Corumba, Cairns, Charters Towers, Mackay and Bundaberg. And it'll be about 5,000 kilometres through Plains, Savannah Country, Rainforest and Coastal Fringe. If you can think of a better way to fit all those landscapes into one trip, I'd like to hear it. At the time you're listening to this, I should have a line in the tropical waters of the Gulf of Carpentaria doing battle with the mighty Barramundi. Why am I telling you this? Well, bragging mostly, but also to advise that although the episode will go up as usual, the website will not be updated until I return. Anyone who has travelled more than 15 minutes from the edge of suburbia in Australia will know the reason for this. The inter-Google in rural and remote Australia is absolute rubbish. So I seriously doubt I'll have sufficient internet connection to update the site. But never fear, you will still receive the usual Instagram posts and quizzes as my social media marketing team, also known as my daughter, will be keeping that going in my absence. I'll be checking in whenever possible to respond as necessary, but there could be a few days delay. For anyone listening to this episode, after August 2020, I'd just like to say it was an absolutely fabulous trip. I met a lot of fantastic people and saw lots of fantastic things, but that bloody barra did elude me. Anyway, enjoy. As the 2nd AIF got into action in World War 2, they inevitably ended up taking prisoners. As they fought their way across North Africa in what they came to call the Benghazi Handicap, Thousands of Italian soldiers threw up their hands rather than give up their lives for a fascist leader which many of them weren't particularly fond of. This created a problem. What do you do with them all? There was neither the facilities nor manpower available in North Africa to contain them, and England adopted something of a you caught them, you keep them attitude. But in fairness to our Pongolian comrades, they were struggling against German air attacks on the soil of the old DART, and so had much more pressing concerns at the time. The only viable answer was to ship them back to Australia and put them to good use in the fields to replace the men who had joined up and become their captors. Under the Geneva Convention it was perfectly allowable to put POWs to work at manual labour. So across the country POW camps were established to house these Italian and occasionally German gents. Then, in 1941, Japan entered the war with their attack at Pearl Harbour, the Philippines and their surge down the Malayan Peninsula to capture Singapore. When they got to New Guinea, they came up against Australian militia initially, and then units from the second AIF. Although the Japanese soldier was less willing to surrender than their Italian counterparts, the Australian troops still managed to nab a few of them. These few also ended up being transported to Australia, with just over 2,000 of them finding themselves accommodated in Cowra, alongside but segregated from the European prisoners. Watching over all these former combatants were members of the Australian Militia's 22nd Garrison Battalion. This battalion consisted mainly of old World War One veterans who were too old to carry a rifle across North Africa or the New Guinea jungle, wounded men who were unfit to be returned to the front line units, or other young fellows deemed to be not fit enough for service elsewhere. While conditions were generally pretty good by POW standards and all in accordance with the Geneva Convention, the relationship between the Australians and the Japanese wasn't necessarily as cordial as they were between the Australians and the European prisoners. Cultural differences is often cited as the reason for this. Although, not basing my own opinion on anything substantive, it doesn't take much to draw a line between Japanese actions against Australian troops in the jungles and the garrison's lonely opinion of their charges. Keeping in mind that some of the garrison would have seen first-hand the results of some of the atrocities dished out. But as I say, that's just my opinion. But for the most part, things carried on day after day without much to disturb the peaceful sunny days spent in the tranquillity of rural New South Wales. But under the surface, the Japanese prisoners were suffering in a way that the Australians probably didn't fully understand. They were living with the shame and dishonour of being prisoners of war. According to the Bushido Code, they should have died in battle rather than allowed themselves to be captured. They felt themselves to be cowards. Not only did they bring shame unto themselves, they brought shame to their families. Some of them gave an alias name when captured in the hope that their families back home would think they were dead, rather than having it confirmed that they were prisoners. It was a shame that would eat away at many of them, until something came along which offered them a chance at redemption. This came along in August of 1944, but for the first link in the chain of events that precipitated the breakout, we need to hop across the Tasman to a little town in New Zealand called Featherston in February of 1943. At Featherston, the NZers had established their own POW camp, and as was usual in camps, the prisoners were put to work. Unfortunately, by 1943, a large number of prisoners decided they shouldn't be forced to work, and so about 240 of them staged a sit-in. The subsequent events have been disputed ever since, but not in dispute is the fact that Japanese Sub-Lieutenant Adachi was shot and wounded by the camp adjutant. The predictable result was the other prisoners either charging at or appearing to charge at the guards, whichever way you want to look at it, and obviously feeling threatened by a couple of hundred angry prisoners rushing at them, the guards opened fire, with rifle, machine guns and pistols. In the end, 48 prisoners were either killed outright or died of their wounds. One New Zealander was killed by a stray bullet. At a court of inquiry, the major blame for the incident went to the prisoners, but again, cultural differences were cited. Obviously, this incident didn't go unnoticed in Australia, and the decision was made to tighten security at Cowra. The garrison was issued with Vickers and Lewis machine guns, all pointing inwards as a deterrent to anyone wanting to get out and see the countryside. Six guard towers were erected to provide full view of the camp, but there was a substantial area outside of the huts which were not fully open to the view of the guards. So things bubbled along, a bit of tension between captors and captives, but generally without too many issues. But in August 1944, the authorities were tipped off to the possibility of trouble from these Japanese prisoners, and so it was decided to move all prisoners except NCOs and officers to another facility at Hay, about 400 kilometers to the west. When the prisoners were advised of the move, they decided that the time to act had come. At about 1.50 on the morning of the 5th of August 1944, a solitary bugle call sounded in the still night air. No doubt the guards on duty at the time wondered why someone would be blowing a horn in the middle of the night, but they didn't have to ponder this for very long. The bugle call was a signal for the roughly 900 Japanese prisoners assembled in their huts to burst forth and charge the fences surrounding their compound. A number of the huts were satellite and their occupants surged out. According to the military inquiry, prisoners had armed themselves with knives, many of them with mess knives, which had been sharpened into weapons, baseball bats and improvised clubs and even a sword fashioned from a bread knife. To protect themselves from the barbed wire fences, many wore baseball gloves, while others wrapped toilet paper around their hands, while wearing towels on their bodies or two or three layers of clothing. Some were carrying lengths of rope which they had fashioned out of old rice sacks. The alarm was raised and while garrison troops woke up and rushed to their positions, the Japanese had broken through the compound fence in three places, with one group finding themselves on an internal road which ran through the camp. This group then broke into two, with one group charging to the gate to the north and the other heading to the south. Both groups were met by rifle fire from the garrison and the survivors were forced to take cover in drainage ditches where they remained until daybreak. They were rounded up and marched back to the compound. The other two groups which had breached the compound pushed a bit harder. One group charged directly at a Vickers gun, manned by Private Benjamin Hardy and Private Ralph Jones. The two men cut down many of the attackers, but the sheer number of Japanese meant that their position was going to be overrun. Recognising the hopelessness of their situation, they removed the firing mechanism from the gun and threw it into the scrub. In doing so, they prevented the Japanese from capturing the weapon and turning it on the remainder of the garrison. Unfortunately, moments later, the Japanese were on to them and the two men were killed. They were each posthumously awarded the George Cross for their bravery. The George Cross is the highest award for valour outside of a war situation, kind of like a civilian Victoria Cross. One group of Japanese charged at the barracks which housed the garrison, but the Australians were quick into action and were able to put down heavy fire which prevented the Japanese from advancing any further and inflicting heavy casualties. A large group of just under 400 prisoners managed to breach the perimeter and advance beyond. Seventy of these men took up a position on a hillside overlooking the Garrison Headquarters hut and chose to remain there until daybreak, at which point they were rounded up and escorted back to the camp. It makes you wonder why, having broken out, these men just sat there, waiting to be taken back into the camp. Maybe they felt they had restored a bit of honour in simply breaking out, and maybe they had no idea what else to do in a strange land, totally unaware of exactly where they were in that land. Who knows? The remainder of the escapees headed into the bush and scattered. It later became known that the prisoners had agreed that, should they be successful in breaking out, they weren't to harm any civilians. But that was later. At the time you can only imagine how the garrison troops must have felt at the knowledge that over 300 enemy soldiers were now loose in the region. Local farms, many of which had men away at war, were now vulnerable. The garrison wasted no time in assembling search parties. However, as day broke over the camp, there were many wounded Japanese requiring urgent medical attention and much of the garrison's troops were put to work bringing in the dead and wounded. An inspection of the barrack huts was also conducted and discovered 20 charred bodies throughout the buildings. Further investigation showed that eight of them had been hanged, while the other twelve had died either at their own hands or at the hands of their comrades. During the first day of the search, a party led by Lieutenant Harry Doncaster was ambushed by a group of Japanese, and although the party was able to fight them off, Lieutenant Doncaster was killed. Private Charles Shepherd was the only other Australian fatality, stabbed to death by one of the prisoners during the escape. It took nine days for the search parties to round up 334 escaped prisoners, 25 of whom were discovered dead, 11 from hanging, 2 from placing themselves on railway tracks and others showing signs of being stabbed with the types of weapons which the prisoners had fashioned for use throughout the breakout. In total, the Japanese casualties came to one officer and 230 other ranks killed, died of wounds or suicide, and one officer, 107 other ranks wounded. The dead were buried in the war cemetery in Kaura. The total Australian casualties were one officer, and three other ranks killed, and four other ranks wounded. On the day of the breakout, Japanese officers from a neighbouring compound submitted a letter to the Commandant, advising that they had assisted the escaping parties by providing advice and any other help they could. In the letter, they had all requested to be shot as accomplices to the attempt. And their request was denied. A court of inquiry was conducted and first sat on the 7th of August and concluded on the 15th of August. The main points identified in the report were the conditions in the camp were in line with the Geneva Convention, housing, bedding and sanitary arrangements were on par with those provided for the garrison, food was plentiful, no complaints concerning their treatment had been reported by the prisoners and the breakout was a premeditated plan. Firing was directed only at POWs, actively taking part in the attack, and was deemed to be at a level necessary to defend against the attack. Firing ceased at the earliest possible moment, and the medical arrangement for the treatment of wounded POWs was satisfactory. At this point, it's worth contemplating what the Japanese hoped to gain by escape. There was no chance of them blending in with the locals and stealthily making their way to the coast to hop on a boat, waiting to whisk them away to Japan. I doubt many of them thought they would be able to hide and survive in a land totally foreign to them. Was it really just about trying to regain a bit of honour, a chance to die fighting, or at least show that they weren't just submissively awaiting their fate? The inquiry report stated that the extensive preparations made by the Japanese, the commencement of the mutiny during the hours of darkness, and the other attendant circumstances, proved beyond all doubt that the owners for the incidents rest entirely on the prisoners of war themselves and that it was their intention to engage in suicidal combat with the guards. It appears that 235 people were killed for no greater purpose than honour. hope you enjoyed that episode. If so, be sure to subscribe, leave a comment and share among your friends. If you have any topics relating to our military history which you would like me to present, drop me a line through the website at the Australian military history Podcast.com or on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at amhpodcast all one word. And thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast.